Welcome to a brand new episode of the Jam Pack Report, the day for April the 7th of 2020. Of course, my name is Samuel Adams, and this is a daily gaming news podcast meant to bring you the hottest news from around the industry five days a week, Monday through Friday, right here on YouTube and podcast services around the world. So if you enjoy the show, you like what you see, hit that subscribe button and keep coming back for more. But let me tell you, we've got some pretty big news to dive into today because Sony has unveiled the controller for the PlayStation 5. It's not the DualShock 5. Meet the DualSense. Sony still has not shown off what the PlayStation 5 will look like, but it just unveiled the controller for its next-gen console, the DualSense, which marks the biggest departure for Sony's controller design in its over 25-year history of PlayStation consoles. The new controller has some big changes on the inside, too. The previously announced haptic feedback, replacing the old rumble technology in previous controllers, and the new adaptive triggers that can adjust the resistance of the triggers for different gameplay effects. There is also an integrated microphone, a first for Sony's controllers, along with a long overdue USB-C port. And of course, there is the new two-tone color scheme, similar in style to the PlayStation VR, and an overhaul design that gives a more rounded shape to the grips and face buttons. The share button has also been renamed to a new create button, which will offer new ways for players to create epic gameplay content to share with the world. Sony promises that additional details will be announced on that front closer to launch. Some of the buttons on the DualSense are also getting some light tweaks compared to the old DualShock. The PlayStation button, for example, is now cut out in the actual shape of the PlayStation logo, while the triggers have received a more angled design than past Sony controllers. Other features from the DualShock 4 will still remain on the DualSense, like the center-mounted touchpad and the light bar, although the bar has been moved from the top slash back of the controller to the left and right sides of the touchpad. Sony is also sticking with its symmetrical controller layout, with the D-pad and face buttons on the top half of the controller and the matching analog sticks on the bottom. Further details about the DualSense, like how much additional controllers will cost, or if Sony will be offering more controller color options, will presumably be announced close to the PlayStation 5's fall launch. For reference, the DualShock 4 will cost, or it did cost, $59.99 when it was first released. And so there you have it, there is the DualSense. The DualShock 5 is officially titled the DualSense, and at first glance, when you first see this image, it's jarring because it's not what you expect. If you look at early drawings and early trademarks of the PlayStation 5's controller, it seemed to be something that was very similar in a lot of ways to the DualShock 4, so I don't think a lot of people were really expecting this amount of change. And although it does look in a lot of ways similar to the DualShock 4, you can see that there are a lot of departures from that original design. First and foremost, this thing's way bulkier, and of course, back whenever they unveiled more details about the PlayStation 5 and its controller last year, they did mention it's going to be heavier, it's going to be slightly less heavy, I believe, if I remember correctly, than the Xbox One controller is currently. So that's kind of the way you can expect. Uh, now, first and foremost, you notice the body has changed. You see it more curved on the top uh, portion here of the DualShock 4, and then below you see a bit more grip on the sides. In a way, this is what I would consider to be the perfect combination of the Xbox One controller and the PlayStation 4 controller. I think this really does bring those two designs together. Now, my question is, aside from the aesthetic purposes, what is the point of having uh, the light bar on the left and right of the touchpad? Now, if you go back to the other picture that was also shown, you see that the light bar actually goes up underneath the touchpad and it kind of swerves around. 
I was always under the impression this was a utilitarian design. Uh, this was something that was required, especially whenever we had the PlayStation Move and the PlayStation Camera. I think that was something that was also baked into the design of the PlayStation 4, but I suppose aesthetically, uh, this is also totally understandable. Now, if you want to dive in very in-depth, you can check out the entire rundown on the PlayStation blog for the entire guide, uh, giving you all of the information and in-depth uh, various details about the controller. But the thing that comes to my mind whenever I see this new design, first and foremost, right off the bat, is that this is innovative. This is something new. And I think that name, I think DualSense, it showcases something new. They very easily could have called this the DualShock 5 and it would have been perfectly acceptable, but this is something new. This is something unique and it plays on that sense portion of the name. It shows that this haptic feedback and these adaptive triggers, this is going to present something new. And I think that this generation going forward is going to be defined between innovation and iteration. Innovation on the PlayStation side, iteration on the Xbox side. Because if you look at this week's update for the Xbox One UI, you begin to get a sense of Microsoft edging in and trying to update the Xbox One X so it still looks like it's in the family of the Xbox Series X when it launches later this year. And if you look at the controller, it gives off a similar kind of vibe. The Xbox Series X controller by and large isn't that different from the Xbox One controller, and in fact, they're backwards compatible. You can use either with any console. If you just want the Series X controller for your Xbox One X, you can totally do that. And so that is an iterative kind of feature. If you look at this, this is innovation. This is something new. It's a new design. It's a bit chunkier. You have bigger buttons on the back paddles. I think that's something that I can also say confidently. This is a totally new design. It almost seems like more of a shell than it is a giant one-piece mold. Uh, but I will say, of course, first and foremost, big point for me, rechargeable batteries on this bad boy. Don't know why Xbox didn't do that either. So the big question on my mind coming out of this controller reveal is although these are cool features, although this controller design is beginning to grow on me, my big takeaway, will people actually use these features? Will developers develop games that bake these features in? Because I think back to the PlayStation Vita specifically, but also looking at the DualShock 4 itself, the existing controller and its touchpad. On the Vita, for example, you have the touchpad on the back and the front of the device itself. How many developers outside of that first round of games showcasing the PlayStation Vita really took full advantage of what that had to offer? On top of that, if you look at the DualShock 4's touchpad, outside of a couple of games that take advantage of it here and there, what really is the utility of having the touchpad? The majority of games don't really need it, so my question is, will this be another feature that's cool, and many can take advantage of it, and many first parties will take advantage of it, especially towards the beginning of the generation, but will it be something that sticks around? And that's not a question that can be answered by me or anybody else right now. We have to wait for the developers to get their hands on this and really see if it's something that's worth the time investment over the course of the next five to 10 years. The one game that always comes to mind whenever I'm thinking specifically about the adaptive triggers is Tomb Raider. So if they make a new Tomb Raider game, let's say it comes out on the Xbox Series X and the PlayStation 5. If I'm playing on the Xbox Series X and it's just like I'm playing Tomb Raider on the Xbox One, that's perfectly fine. But if Tomb Raider comes out and I'm playing on the PlayStation 5 and I can feel 
Lara drawing a bow back in her crossbow, or whatever it might be, or I can feel the pull of a trigger whenever she's firing an assault rifle, or I can feel uh, various rocks hitting me on each side of my body in the controller through haptic feedback. That kind of experience, that's what's going to really drive this controller to push the PlayStation 5 to new heights. And so, of course, first parties are going to take full advantage of this, I have no doubt. Uh, but it is something that's a bit concerning because I don't know how this is going to play out in the long run. I think back to stuff like Killzone Shadowfall that took advantage of the PlayStation 5's touchpad, or the, excuse me, the PlayStation 4's touchpad at the beginning of the generation. But after that, outside of stuff like Infamous Second Son and those first three years of PlayStation 4 exclusives, you begin to see it becoming a lesser and lesser important part of the experience. But I digress. I like the controller design. When I first saw it, I thought, ooh, what? But then it began to kind of grow on me, and I must admit, I'm a pretty big fan of it right now. I also like how big the buttons are, and I think this is going to feel really good in the hand. Of course, we have no release date, no price point, and no description of what the PlayStation 5 is going to look like, but I would say you can probably guarantee uh, that it's going to be something that is a combination of white and black. I would guess, of course, I'm no designer, and we have not seen any kind of leaks or anything outside of the dev kit, uh, this is going to be something that looks a lot like the PlayStation 4 Pro with a better fan kind of setup, but also uh, probably bakes in the black and white kind of aesthetic as well. So that's exciting to see, and I cannot wait to follow up with you guys on a future show and talk about the next uh, big reveal from Sony, which I guarantee is going to be coming in the coming weeks. Uh, but again, coming holiday 2020, very excited to see how this one pans out. Now, normally... We would see this kind of event held at E3, but that's not happening this year because of the coronavirus, and it looks like there is not going to be a digital replacement either. When the ESA canceled E3 2020 due to the coronavirus pandemic, it issued a statement saying it was exploring options with our members to coordinate an online experience to showcase industry announcements and news in June of 2020. The organization has now announced it will not be doing that, instead focusing on promoting individual companies' events. Given the disruption brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic, we will not be presenting an online E3 2020 event in June. Instead, we will be working with exhibitors to promote and showcase individual company announcements, including on E3Expo.com in the coming months, a rep told PC Gamer. We look forward to bringing our industry and community together in 2021 to present a reimagined E3 that will highlight new offerings and thrill our audiences. GameSpot contacted the ESA and received the same statement. This means the ESA will not be coordinating company events to take place under one umbrella, which suggests that we may not see them occurring within one week like a traditional E3 event. Individual companies have not yet announced their own digital event plans, so it's unclear exactly when we will see showcases from publishers. Some may take place in June, though with this statement, they won't necessarily have to. Meanwhile, Microsoft has announced it is experimenting with digital-only events, and let's go ahead and dive into that news story, shall we? Microsoft has clarified a statement which suggests all of its events, external and internal, would transition to a digital-first experience until July 2021. The decision suggested Microsoft was quietly pulling back from physical activities at events this summer, including its usual big showing at Gamescom, still at present set to take place in August, but which looks increasingly likely to go digital-only anyway. It also suggested Microsoft would not hold any kind of physical launch event for the Xbox Series X due to this Christmas, excuse me, due this Christmas, a date Microsoft has recently recommitted to, with some caveats. And looking to 2021, the statement even cast doubt on Microsoft attending next year's E3, whose dates have already been announced for mid-June 2021. But the statement did not come directly from Microsoft itself. 
Rather, it emerged via a Twitter user who posted what appeared to be guidance on attending Microsoft's March 2021 MVP Summit, a now-canceled tech event held annually at the company's headquarters in Redmond, Washington. And crucially, it had several caveats in which the company said it would still continue to evaluate the situation to connect in person when the situation allows. So, essentially, it looks like Microsoft is going to be doing more digital stuff over the coming months, but it's not going to be exclusively going digital. Now, E3, on the other hand, is doing nothing. So that's a big shock. Now, of course, we talked last Friday about the fact that IGN announced their own Summer of Gaming event, which is going to be, in a way, like a big digital E3. Uh, they are planning showcases. They're bringing together companies from around the industry, and they're putting on a show online. Very excited about that. But E3's digital cancellation is a dangerous move, and I have a couple of thoughts on it. First and foremost, I think that E3 as a event and as a name is beginning to decline. I think it will always have value, but I think it will become more of a fan convention than a gaming industry convention. And we've seen that move over the course of the past few years anyway, as it's reopened to the public and as more and more common people have just been going to E3 for fun and to see what the next year of gaming has in store. But uh, in 2021, I think that's going to be more prevalent than ever, and I think that its reputation as an industry summit is beginning to decline, and it will probably uh, just fade into uh, pretty much irrelevancy for the majority of gaming corporations outside of it being able to be a pretty, you know, good ground for marketing new titles. Now, the question is, this digital replacement event next year, how good will that be? What is the big plan? And will companies actually adopt this and say, hey, you know what, for old time's sake, let's do a digital event. Because right now, Sony is trending on Twitter with the PlayStation 5's controller reveal, and it just took a blog post. There's no video, there's no live event, there's nothing. They had to do nothing. They posted a blog and social media did its thing. They don't really need to do a big E3 event anymore. And it will be interesting going forward to see how Microsoft handles its situation as well. Uh, but it looks like more digital events are going to be coming in the future and less physical events, but I still think uh, that hosting a physical in-person event brings something that's unique, it brings something fun, it brings something uh, that gets people excited, and you can't really abandon that right now. Uh, at least not yet. I really do like physical events, and I think they bring something unique, so we'll see where they go. But you don't have to go anywhere to play Valorant, and many, many people are wanting to play Valorant. Because the closed beta has rushed to 1.6 million viewers on Twitch. That's close to the record. The Valorant closed beta got underway earlier today, and no surprise here, there looks to be an awful lot of interest in it. Roughly 1.6 million people are watching it being played on Twitch, which, as Kotaku notes, puts it as close as you can pretty much possibly get to the all-time record of 1.7 million concurrent viewers put up by Fortnite during its Season 10 ending black hole. And since then, Valorant views have hit 1.7 million, tying it for the best concurrent viewer count on Twitch. One factor behind Valorant's big Twitch success may lie in the way Riot is distributing closed beta keys. Instead of doling them out at random to people who ask nicely, in the style of CSGO souvenir item drops, they are being given to people who are watching the streams. That's naturally going to drive up the number of viewers, and it's also going to encourage people to game the system. According to DOT Esports, or Dot Esports, eager Valor... Ooh, what the hell? Va Va Valorantines? Okay, are we? is that what we're doing? Are setting up multiple linked Riot and Twitch accounts in order to increase their odds of getting a key. 
Given that, it will be interesting to see how the viewership holds up as keys become more widely available, although there is no question that the interest is real and not just a rush for something free to play for a few days. Riot's other game, League of Legends, remains a huge success, and the studio's decision to finally move into something different after more than a decade of League of Legends is bound to attract attention. Riot has also been very judicious with Valorant's drip feed unveiling. We have had some hands-on time with it, they say at PC Gamer, but shared gameplay has until today been restricted to brief teasers and an influencers event that took place last weekend. It may be a while yet before Riot is ready to start handing out keys on a large scale. Some beta testers were reportedly running into troubles, troubles, the hell's a trouble, troubles logging into the game, and at last check, Riot was still working to track down these troubles. A handful of us here at PC Gamer have access to Valorant and will continue to report on this phase of the game's release. It looks good. Okay, so for those that don't know, Valorant is essentially a combination of CSGO and Overwatch. You have these heroes in a way, you have these ops, uh, if you will, that each have a specific benefit, a perk, a utility, whatever you want to call it, and they can do specific things, and it kind of combines a team-based element with the Twitch shooter kind of setup that CSGO tends to have. It's a really good game. The map design is very impressive for me. Uh, personally, I've had a window up watching it basically all day, and although I'm never going to play this because it's not my kind of game, this could be the next big esport. This could be another League of Legends. This could be something that really gets people going. Of course, if you look at CS itself, it's been around for a very long time. Counter-Strike has been established as pretty much one of the original esports that really drove uh, the industry to success, and I think you are going to be seeing that exact same scenario again with Valorant. Uh, even if you take out 600,000 of those people that are just wanting keys, you're still left with a million people watching the game. That's a big chunk of people. Now, I'm not saying it's going to have the longevity and the girth of the Fortnite community. I think that's something that is generally inflated by a lot of younger viewers. But if you look at Valorant itself, it's a high quality game from a top tier studio that's going to be free to play and it has a very high skill cap. Excited to see where this one goes. Uh, but if you want to watch it, of course, you can get tons and tons of streams on Twitch, on Mixer, on Facebook, wherever you want to watch. And many of those are also giving out drops on Twitch, so you can stay tuned, link your Riot account, and then you could get a chance to get into the closed beta itself. However, some bad news we have right now. The Last of Us Part Two and Iron Man VR have been delayed. We talked about that last week. But now, digital pre-orders for both The Last of Us Part II and Iron Man VR are now being refunded, PlayStation has said via its support site. Neither game has been given a new release date after being indefinitely delayed, and so I wanted to let you guys know to check your email, check your bank account, make sure you are getting your refunds and that everything is sorted out there. Of course, both of these games were delayed because of production issues with the coronavirus. Uh, specifically in regards to The Last of Us 2, this is a game that has been looked forward to for a very long time. It's been in development for a very long time, and it's almost finished. It's essentially done. Uh, it would have hit its original date, but the manufacturing and distribution is being crippled by what's happening now with COVID-19. So it's worth mentioning uh, that although we have no definitive release date as of right now, I'm betting you're probably going to be looking at something around July or August if I had to guess, but I'll keep you guys up to date on when those definitive release dates are finally unveiled. And to round out today's show, I wanted to remind you, don't rage quit, especially when you're a NASCAR driver on iRacing because you could lose a sponsor. 
Bubba Wallace got mad, Jimmy Johnson fired an NPC, and Eric Jones couldn't figure out why his PC kept crapping out. The coronavirus outbreak has pro sports leagues of all stripes scrambling to find ways to keep their audiences entertained. The world of auto racing is leaning heavily into virtual performances, with F1, NASCAR, and FIA all holding recent official events. It's a natural fit. Online racing is already common and sometimes extremely realistic, so a simulated race can come much closer to delivering the real thing than, say, finish hockey playoffs. But as realistic as these sims are, they are still video games at their core, and that means a couple of things. One, that people are going to be a lot more likely to screw around than they would if they were actually stuck inside 3,000 pounds of steel and rubber moving at 200 miles an hour. And two, when that happens, sooner or later, somebody is going to get mad. Somebody like, for instance, 43 driver Bubba Wallace, who tangled with 14 driver Clint Bowyer at the eNASCAR iRacing Pro Invitational Series at Bristol. Bowyer had a somewhat different perspective on the matter. Of course, you can see both of the clips here if you would like. Uh, here is where he just rage quits and and begins to uh, essentially just leave the competition and quit, just leaves the game. And it's just one of those things where you think why you, you just think why. And so if you're looking at, at everything that's going on right here, you see the different, different perspective. You see the, the frustration. Uh, but Wallace made light of the situation in a later tweet, but not everyone found it quite so amusing. Blue Emu, the number one selling emu oil brand in the United States. Emu oil is used in various forms as a moisturizer and anti-inflammatory for pain relief and other purposes, although little evidence of its efficiency are currently existing, ended its partnership with Wallace in response to his tweet. Wallace's rage quit was definitely the high point of NASCAR's iRacing weekend drama, but it was far from the only moment of excitement. Jimmy Johnson fired at his virtual spotter, which I don't think is actually possible, and Eric Jones apparently needs a new PC. This is something that's kind of weird. So first and foremost, I don't think that Bubba Wallace is necessarily going to be crying over his ended sponsorship with a emu oil company, uh, but what a story this one is, and it shows that there is drama to be here. There is excitement to be found in iRacing and, and e-racing and all these various letter racings, I think it's really neat. Now, it's not going to replace in-person NASCAR, because for those that have never been at least anywhere near a NASCAR event, it's something entirely unique. I have never been to a NASCAR race, not really my cup of tea, but I do live in Charlotte. We have the Charlotte Motor Speedway. There are plenty of big-name NASCAR races here, and there's a mall about a mile away. If you go to the mall on a Sunday where there is a NASCAR race, you are surrounded by thousands of these campers and these people that are just partying and having a great time. And you drive by the stands and it's just insane. The roar, it sounds like a continual thunder mixed in with a lot of racing noises. It's really neat. And so although iRacing can never really replace that, and this time specifically and for those that might be willing to sacrifice a bit of realism, I think iRacing is a perfect replacement. But hey, Bubba Wallace, you might not want to quit next time because next time it could be a much bigger sponsor. But I suppose we'll have to wait and see. However, that rounds out this week's episode of the Jam Pack Report. And by this week, I mean today. But until next time, you guys have a fantastic rest of your night. Let me know what you think about the DualSense down below, and I will talk to you soon. Peace.